Hey, welcome back to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. In this edition, we reflect on Malcolm Turnbull's rise to the top of the political stack in Australia after ousting his colleague Tony Abbott. To take us through this conversation, let's hear from our host, broadcaster and anthropologist Sally Warhart. It's just a tremendous pleasure uh, tonight to be, uh, well, getting into a chat with these uh, two distinguished women about what's going on in our national capital and beyond. Laura Tingle is the political editor of the Australian Financial Review and the author of the quarterly essay, Great Expectations, Government, Entitlement and an Angry Nation. And she's also working on, I think it's the next quarterly essay. Out on the 23rd of November. There we are. Out on the, and it's titled... Just in time for Christmas. Is it Political Amnesia? Political Amnesia, How We Forgot How to Govern. Fantastic. Uh, we, we will remember to read it, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Laura uh, has won, well, amongst her many, you know, achievements and awards, two Walkleys, the Paul Lynham Award for Excellence in Press Gallery Journalism, and she'll be, um, well, known to many of you as a regular on LNL as well. Michelle Grattan has been a member of the Canberra Press Gallery for 40 plus years. Round then. She must have. <laughs> Round that. She must have started as a child. <laughs> uh, she worked for Fairfax for uh, many years, including as political editor of the Age, and she's currently a professorial fellow uh, at the University of Canberra, and the chief political correspondent for the Conversation, which she's been uh, doing for almost three years. And. Uh, Please uh, look out in uh, the coming uh, next couple of months before Christmas for the Conversations 2015 yearbook, which is uh, called Politics, Policy and the Chance for Change. And uh, have a look at the Conversation website. If you don't regularly already, it'll tell you how to get it. Otherwise, go and ask your local bookshop to get it in in time for Christmas. Uh, Michelle... uh, received an Order of Australia in 2004 and the Walkley Award for Journalism Leadership in 2006, uh, a Walkley Awards ceremony that I was there at. Were you there, Laura, when was it Glenn Milne punched Stephen Maine and you could still smoke and it was like my fantasy. It was the first Walkleys I ever went to and Michelle got the big gong and she wore a magnificent dress and gave a very memorable speech and it was just a wonderful night for me, Michelle, so I hope it was for you as well. Please give them another warm welcome. I want to start tonight by asking each of you a little bit about um, Turnbull, the person, um, and to start with the the question, how good is he? (laughs) Thanks, Michelle. (laughs) Well, how good is he at what? Uh, Now, what do we know about him? He's exceptionally smart. Uh, He can be exceptionally charming and persuasive. And uh, he can also be really horrible. Um, and uh, I don't think we, in, in the current love-a-thon we're having, we should forget that. Um, he's still uh, uh, probably the scariest person you could ever have at the end of an irate phone call. Uh, and, uh, Except that's... Paul Keddie. Oh, I th- well, I don't know. I think he gives <laughs> him a bit of a run for his money, Michelle. Um, and, uh, and 
Malcolm does this thing where uh, he sort of sizes you up, usually not very favourably. I mean, he's, a lot of this is sort of, we're not seeing a lot of this at the moment, but he sizes you up, you know, I mean, you can sort of see it happening, I think, can't you? It's just like, and uh, he decides whether you're smart, whether you're useful to him or all those sorts of things. And you can be having a conversation and then you lose him to his mobile phone, and uh, which is a bit humiliating, let's face it. Well, I'm obviously not very intelligent or interesting. Um, look, he's, uh, the big question with Malcolm Turnbull is we saw as opposition leader one side of his personality, this incapacity to tolerate fools, to talk to anybody else, because Malcolm always knows best. Uh, all of that seems to have been sort of hidden away for the time being. And the, the, he is capable of great things, I think. Um, and he obviously has galvanised people's opinions. But, you know, we don't know, you know, the other Malcolm is still lurking there somewhere. And uh, I know of a couple of people who've got the wrong, wrong end of his tongue just in the last few weeks. And so it's still there. Um, and that's something he's just going to have to, we're just going to have to watch. I think he's uh, very good at sketching out the big picture, very good at identifying coming issues. His theme at the moment, of course, as you know, is innovation, and uh, he has all this inspirational language around it. He keeps saying, this is a wonderful time to be alive, it's a wonderful time to be an Australian. And going with that vision thing, if you like, he is also a very good communicator. He's got good phrases, he can pick up themes, and he can resonate with people. Now, I think one of the questions is, how good is he translating the, the big ideas into policies uh, that work, that fit together, that can be delivered. Uh, he's, of course, just been communications minister and he might have inherited all sorts of problems with the NBN, but even under his watch, costs blew out, problems arose. So at a ministerial level, we saw problems. When he was opposition leader, uh, again, he had great... Uh, difficulties, and I think that period showed that he, while he can communicate at a general level, he doesn't communicate or didn't then all that well with colleagues. He wasn't a very good manager of people at all. Laura's illustration about uh, him uh, talking to you and then going off onto the mobile phone points to this bigger problem that he doesn't tolerate fools well. He finds it, and he defines the fools fairly, he's got a fairly Broadly. wide uh, world there. <laughs> and he finds it hard over a sustained period to manage people. And I think the big question is whether he's turned into a genuinely better manager of people. He came in talking about cabinet government as the centre of everything. Now, cabinet government is all about being collegial, listening, taking collective decisions and so on. And we have to see over the medium and longer term whether he can live up to the ideal of cabinet government and at a wider level, the um, better management of people 
than he displayed earlier. I feel like I, we could have just been listening to a, a Rudd the second if I'd asked you that question about Kevin Rudd yeah. with the yeah. comeback. There are but similarities. Is there are a lot weird, of similarities. Though? Is Turnbull kind of weird? <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying about Kevin Rudd there, Sally? <laughs> um, look, I, I don't think he is weird, um, I, I, but, but there are a lot of similarities it really with rings the, of Kevin the, Rudd things. Yeah. But, I mean, I think that one of the crucial things about what's going to happen next uh, goes, in some ways, to the Rudd experience. Um, we're talking about cabinet government, but everybody keeps going back to talking about Malcolm Turnbull. You know, we're all doing it here. I think one of the really interesting things that's happened, if you look at the last uh, eight years, was uh, we get these situations and these relationships that are born in opposition. Kevin, and we, if, if, if you can allow me to just go back to Kevin Rudd, Kevin Rudd came in uh, as opposition leader with only a short time to go before the election campaign. And I mean, this has always tended to happen in the past, but he ran, ran this unbelievably tight campaign. Everybody in the Labor Party was so desperate to get back. They basically deferred to him, you know, captain's calls, as we now sort of fashionably call them. Basically, everything was given uh, difference to the leader. And uh, I remember sitting in, a, in, in the Fairfax boardroom one day with uh, the, the old gang of four, Kevin Rudd, uh, Wayne Swan, Julie Gillard and Lindsay Tanner, and being quite shocked. This is about six months before the 2007 election, with the three of them just sitting there, you know, wait, waiting to be asked a question by Kevin. Now, I think what happened was he then gets into government, or they get into government, but the relationships had been established. And you'd get cabinet ministers in that government saying, oh, you don't know what it's like, he might be really mean and sack me. And I'm going, oh, for God's sake, you know, you're in the constitution, I think, I don't think he is. And so that habit was there. And the same thing was true of Tony Abbott. Um, they basically gave him free reign in opposition. He was there for a very long time with that tight little group of people. He couldn't make that transition. Now, I think Labor ministers didn't learn the lesson and sort of say, look, you know, bugger off Kevin, or even bugger off Julia to some extent. You know, we, we are here as well and we want an argument. Um, I think the interesting dynamic, uh, or the really important dynamic, is that I think the coalition ministers have realised that, and they're sort of on their watch. You know, they're all very excited that Malcolm's doing very well, but one, they've had an experience with him which wasn't very uh, pleasant beforehand, and I think those really crucial brawls that they had over the last few months, particularly on citizenship, where, where Tony Abbott just pushed them just way too far, has made them go, no, we actually have to assert ourselves in quite a formal and official and repeated way against the whims of a leader. And I think that's going to be a very important dynamic. There um, seems to me a, just a great sense of relief about Tony Abbott being gone. Um, I know it's not universal, but it's, it feels pretty broad. Uh, and um, as Keating, <laughs> as as Keating, Paul Keating said last week uh, in Melbourne, I think in Sydney as well, that you know the bar was so low, all anyone had to do was step over it, except while well, he did it, he did this great thing with his foot. Uh, um, and I wonder, though, 
what the mood in Canberra is like in the press gallery. What is there a relief there? Because I mean, I've I've heard more policy discussion in the last six weeks than I think in 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 you know a couple of years. I think there definitely um, is a, a sense of relief there that uh, this administration, from the point of view of um, most journalists, is much easier to deal with. It's more uh, back to a, a routine professional dealing. That's not to say that there won't be um, moments of tension and, and so on, but uh, the control uh, mentality of the Abbott regime was really extraordinary and uh, all, uh, almost all things that were given out were pre-released mainly through the Daily Telegraph but then also in some high-end stuff through the Australian and of course there was this whole um, pursuit and persecution of the ABC which was just crazy in the end. The obsession with Q&A was um, just amazing um, and so th at that level I, and, and things also were not released um, events were not released the details of them till two and a half minutes before they happened so just doing ordinary things became very difficult but with the wider community I think it is it is quite extraordinary this sense of relief I don't remember uh, that same feeling um, in any um, previous time quite in, in this way, frankly, and people just found the divisiveness of the Abbott government, the, um, the constant uh, high level of attack, the general nasty tone that politics uh, had taken on, and of course that followed what had gone before in the Labor years and things had got particularly nasty. But I think what you had was a, a very cynical electorate who then found themselves bombarded with this really aggressive, aggro uh, variety of politics. And that's been wound back. Clearly, Turnbull's attitude, uh, his way of doing things, is uh, a more consensus way. Now, again, that won't last forever and we're heading to an election campaign and, of course, that's all about difference and, and division. But the thing was that under the Abbott administration, everything was about division, where now there's, there's a much more selective approach. Can I just go back to the question about Rudd for two seconds, I think the thing that they share is their absolutely massive egos and a belief that they really do know the answers. There's not a lot of self-doubt in either of those men. Mm. Yeah. And it wasn't just agro uh, also, I think, with, uh, with the um, Abbott regime uh, by the end. I think it was the absolute inanity of it, you know, the absolute ridiculousness of the positions that the government was taking. Um, I mean, 
tax, you know, I work for the Fin Review, so I'd say that, but I mean, the tax debate had just got stupid. I mean, everybody knows... Well, Joe Hockey actually admitted it, didn't he, yeah. last week? Yeah, everybody knows that something has to give on tax for a variety of reasons. And, and the, the government was running around saying, oh, we don't have to do any of this. I mean, it was just... People just going, oh, oh, come on, give us a break. Mind you, now you've got this situation where um, everyone, uh, every time anyone says anything, it's on the table, that you have this laden table <laughs> with everything on it, and someone at some stage has got to take some stuff off that table, and then the real debate will begin. Mm. Who do you think Turnbull is channelling? You know, is it sort of a Howard, um, you know, brought in the, the GST, convinced an electorate about it, um, as I think Turnbull may well do with GST, actually, or superannuation, um, or um, a, a hawk, the consensus, the idea we're going to... Who do you think he's modelling his prime ministerial self on? <clears throat> um, well, I would have thought Malcolm wouldn't actually ever deign to admit that he was modelling himself <laughs> on anybody. Um, We're back to Rudd again, aren't yeah. we? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, look, uh, there, is a, there, is, there are definite whiffs of both uh, John Howard and uh, Bob Hawke in, what, uh, in the way Malcolm Turnbull's going about things. Um, in some ways, I think, more Hawke than Howard. You know, the, the, I, mean, I, I, I mean, one of the things I write about in this essay, which I won't go on about, but it, it's about... You know, I think there are dangers in trying to sort of just, you know, say, oh, well, this is, he's doing the Hawke thing or he's doing the Howard thing. I think times have changed a bit. Um, and he, I mean, I think the thing that's exciting about Malcolm Turnbull is he's really, you know, attuned to that change. He's attuned to the change in the economy. He's really grasped that, you know, demand and desire for a change in the politics as well. So... It will be something a bit different because all the mechanisms of those earlier prime ministerships have changed, if you think about it, the institutions. I mean, there are some journalistic colleagues who still yearn for the good old days of the tripartite, tripartite agreements and the accord and peak body politics. It doesn't work like that anymore. Mm. So you have to play it differently. It's more complicated. Um, so I think he, he's picking up bits of both of those things, but I think... Um, Malcolm Turnbull would see what he's doing as something completely new. I think he talks, it's interesting, he does talk a lot about Howard and he has brought back um, some Howard people uh, in all sorts of roles. And yet, uh, well, one reason why he, he, he goes back to those days, I think, is that Howard has achieved a sort of godlike status now and his government um, is seen as uh, successful and smooth and so on. Now, I have to say it wasn't like that at the time, but that's how the Liberals now nostalgically look back on it and I think that Turnbull's sort of tapping into that uh, as one element of going back to Howard. And yet it does seem to me that those two are just so very different. Howard was the quintessential ordinary man, ordinary person who translated that or those ordinary qualities into a very mm. successful prime ministership, even though he 
he lost in the end. Whereas Turnbull really is uh, literally quite an extraordinary character in terms of his background, uh, what he did before he got into politics, the way he just sort of smashed his way into politics and to the prime ministership, whereas Howard, of course, had a much more conventional background, entry to politics and, and uh, climb up the political ladder. Uh, so they are very, very different, even though there is this reference point for Turnbull. I feel like he's the first Prime Minister in my time, at least, where, uh, you, you know, there isn't this sort of, um, the, 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 the myth of, or the, the narrative of my my hard battling life, Log you know, my, my, you know, mother died or my, this happened or, you know, we had no money for... Well, there's a bit of that, Yes, though. he has there's gone a, back to but that. Do you think he's gone back to it? I feel like he's Not gone recently, more the other earlier. way since he's been Prime Minister, that it's been a, a change from his time in opposition where he did do it mm. to the Prime have... Ministership where he's just saying, I am filthy rich, I'm not like any of you. No, I, I, I don't think that's quite right. I mean, the point is Malcolm Turnbull has come to the Prime Ministership as I think of pretty no, well-known quantity from that earlier period. And I think he would presume that people remember his story about the single dad and all of the sort of sadness of, of his early life. Um, and I don't think he was coming in saying, I am filthy rich by, you know, complete design, but Labor sort of basically, you know, bowled a full toss at him and he said, thank you, I'll have that mm. one. Um, so I think it's a little bit different, but it is certainly true that it is a real transformation in politics, isn't it, that somebody can just say, yeah, I'm really rich, you know, hey, what about it? And and more so that I'll voters... I'll make you rich too. Yeah, and voters say, yeah, he's rich, so what? You know, um, I mean, they they may be worried about tax havens at, at the at the edges, which is what uh, Labor's pinning its hopes on, but, you know, people in general, their response has been, so what? You know, good on him. Um, one of the uh, things, you know, in Australian politics, it seems to me, is that if you want to reform in any area of policy, you, you have to seize it. Uh, it's pretty hard to step around the edges. If you, if you want to change something, you get in there, you explain what you want to do, you come up with a policy and you do it. Now, there are these key areas, of course, of in, you know, difficulty awaiting Malcolm Turnbull, and we all know the areas, particularly climate change, marriage equality. Um, uh, how will he be able to reform uh, in these areas that he cares so much about Republic? I mean, we know where he stands on these. How do you seize reform when you've got this rump of a, a part of your party that once you're gone, and Tony Abbott's still there. I mean, I keep having to remind myself, he's still there. How do you do that? Well, I think, um, in general, to achieve reform, you need to know what you're going to want to do. You need to know what is feasible. In other words, not bite off a whole lot. Get some of those things off the table and decide what you want to keep on the table. Uh, but you've also got to win the trust of the people. And we've had a recent interesting example of this, where in New South Wales we had Mike Baird re-elected, even though people 
didn't like the central reform uh, plank of his election policy, that was electricity privatisation. But they were willing to buy it because they had enough faith in him to say, well, he is the, the better of the, the choices available and we do trust him enough on this issue that, that will swallow the, the downsides of it. So I think those things are really important of, uh, of trust and judgment and then political courage to go after it, uh, as, as you're saying. Malcolm Turnbull does have some complications in this area which uh, are not so obvious in this honeymoon period, but are there. Um, if you take marriage equality, for example, he's had to accept the Abbott plebiscite, even though he had a whole lot of uh, objections to it at the time. Uh, he may try to um, bring on a legislation ahead of the election, which would be seen by many of the parties a, a bit tricky, and that legislation would then trigger the... Um, enactment of same-sex marriage after the plebiscite. But he's been forced into a position which he didn't agree with, which he publicly opposed indeed, and that raises all sorts of questions of consistency and so on. And he was forced into that position because he was trying to get votes for the leadership. And it's the same thing on climate change where he had to accept that he wouldn't change the uh, existing coalition policy. The Nats, for example, so distrusted him that they insisted on this being put in writing with a number of other policy matters. So, again, he might get round that at the edges, but on a couple of key issues, he is in a different position than the one he actually believes in. And when you're reforming, those inconsistencies can uh, throw doubt in a wider context. I mean, and timing is everything. And uh, just sitting here while we're thinking about this, if you think about what's happened, he's got these issues where he's locked in. Everybody knows he's locked into positions he doesn't like. Um, now, how will he change those? He will change those when he when there's an opportunity because of events or because his authority within the government um, becomes such that he can force through a change within the government, just like trying to get a reform through the broader community. So what's Malcolm Turnbull's strategy? Um, so we're all being innovative and agile and exciting and excited and um, he announced the chief scientist's appointment today and we all went down to the press conference and we were more excited and more innovative. <laughs> and uh, it, it was actually quite a funny press conference because uh, the Prime Minister took over the questions of the chief scientist. Um, uh, you looked a bit shocked, actually, yes. because the questioning was quite hard. Yeah, it was, yes, it was, yes, um, it was all, all a bit strange. But we've got we've got that discussion going on about innovation which is something a, a bit interesting but a bit sort of nebulous really but if you think about it it has recast all the you know the dreary old debates which we we all sort of know are sort of sitting there as well like you know the budget which have been so dominant for the last 20 or 30 years but 
while we're all sort of looking at the bright, shiny new innovation debate, we're not really all that sort of conscious of the fact that he's just got, you know, in a, in a financial sense, a series of uh, nightmares to solve, um, along with uh, social issues like same-sex marriage. You know, what are they going to do about the higher education package? What are they going to do about health funding? All those cuts to the states. Keep putting it on the table. Yeah, yeah they're <laughs> on the table. Um, so, yeah. but. We, yeah. you know, they're, they're put off for the moment. If he can build up his credibility and deliver something on innovation, where everybody goes, "Oh, gee, that's good," you know, that just give, it wins him some time to, you know, do a bit of manoeuvring behind the scenes. Hopefully, um, build builds up his authority and credibility within the within the government, and you know, then he just slices off some of these issues one by one. But he has made himself a bit of a hostage to fortune on this innovation thing because he's promising a statement before Christmas mm. and today at this press conference, uh, Christopher Pine was uh, uh, again talking up how big all this was going to be and someone rather inconveniently said, well, didn't we have an innovation-like statement a year ago? And anyway, that was that was just building blocks, wasn't it, that mm, statement? Yes. Uh, and now uh, we, we're presumably going to have the whole house. Mm. But of course, if this innovation statement does not live up to expectations, if the financial review says, well, this is a bit of a crock, which and is probably fairly likely, even yeah. for <laughs> then, uh, then you you do find that um, there are there's more scepticism about, and a more critical approach will come on other things as well. Mm. Tony Abbott uh, tried to convince us uh, as Australians that uh, we had to reconceive what we expect of government and that it obviously didn't go very well for him. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering what Malcolm Turnbull if, is saying about what we should expect from government. This is a, it's a key question. It's a key question in your first quarterly essay mm. uh, about entitlement, about expectations, about Australians not really understanding what the relationship is with government even anymore. Mm. Is there any light uh, or, or yeah, you know, any certainty about what Turnbull's sense of that relationship, uh, what he's trying to get across, other than nicer and innovative? Um, look, agile too. Agile. agile. Very agile. Yes. Uh, he's got to be very agile at the moment. <laughs> yeah. um, look, I think... He's managed to sort of. They've got. He's still in this sort of wonderful stage of having the best of both worlds. Like, uh, for example, uh, Greg Hunt, the environment minister, goes around saying, "Oh, we've brought the uh, renewable energy agency and uh, the clean energy finance corporation back into the department, so they can work better together." And he was saying this at a function I was at a couple of weeks ago, and I put my hand up and said, "Can I just clarify that those two things are still up for abolition. You know, you've got the legislation in the Senate. Oh, well, yes, but we can't get it through the Senate. So in the meantime, so, and this, there's a lot of that in, I think, the Malcolm position, but uh, when, when he did a whole series of newspaper interviews on Friday, I asked him about Gonski. Remember Gonski? Um, and not about the Gonski package as put down by Labor, but about the idea of trying to establish some very sophisticated funding base which addressed the needs of indiv individual students. And he was basically very supportive of that idea, but said, 
it's just administratively, you know, we just can't do it yet. So I think his, and I think this reflects his general view that we should be able to put a lot of resources into education. I think that's part of his, you know, world view. Uh, but, uh, you know, he still, and I think he's also got a very interesting view of the role of government. Um, and you can see that in some speeches he gave as communications minister where he said, reflecting on the NBN, where, as Michelle says, you know, it's turned out it wasn't quite so easy as he thought. Um, but he's, his basic position is a completely pragmatic one, which is, look, government actually does do some things very well, which is something you don't really hear very much of in Canberra. And he said, you've got to just say, who is the best person to do a particular job, and then how do you make it work best together? Now, I don't know if that entirely answers the question, but I think it's a much, it's not an ideological position. It's a position of pragmatism, and he talks about pragmatism a lot. Um, and I think he, and whatever, you just notice it when he's talking about energy. He says, look, there are all these different energy options, nuclear, renewables, whatever. We've got to look at what the best low-cost uh, option is and balance all these very conflicting and contradictory other issues. So I, th I think it's just basically a pragmatic view, but one that isn't built on the idea that government is bad. Mm. Yes, I don't think um, it's easy to get any feel of uh, a broader theory of the role of government from him. Even if you looked at the raft of interviews he did at the weekend, it was interesting that if you had to write an essay on the basis of them, what does Malcolm Turnbull believe? I think it would be quite hard to do. He's, he does stress uh, that we shouldn't take an ideological approach to things, but in terms of his own philosophy about government, it, it really isn't spelled out that I know of. What about as a, a, a nationalist? You know, does he have a... Do you have a sense of a sort of a, a, a national project for Australia? Uh, or again, is that is that hard to read? I'm trying to think of, you know, you don't hear that rhetoric from him uh, very often. Uh, the, the idea of a, I suppose, you know, we heard it from much more from, well, Howard, Rudd, Gillard, um, real, whether, you know, the, the, the nationalist, uh, uh, sort of line of you know this great Australian nation and so on. It's a bit of a relief we're not hearing it. Aren't we? Yeah. Well, I. I or is I'm, that just me? I, uh, I. But do we know? Do you know? Um, well, there were, just going back to those interviews, um, uh, he was quoting Mao apparently uh, mm -hmm. to the uh, to the smage um, and uh, and Mao, or paraphrasing. Um, Mao saying, you know, we're, we're standing up for China and saying we're standing up for Australia. But I, 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 it's not a nationalist thing. It's just more that sort of sense that, you know, in a, in a sort of an economic sense, we can be much more dynamic uh, and, you know, we can be proud of being Australian, but, he, you know, we're, we're sort of mercifully free of all the flags and all that sort of stuff. So Fo it's, it's Footies on the Prime Ministerial bookshelf. No, no footies. Yeah. Um, no, no, mm. that sort of stuff. Mm. In a way, he's a sort of internationalist, isn't he, in the sense of um, he's being tuned into 
the technology of the world and cutting edge and all this stuff. Um, he's, um, that seems to preoccupy him more than uh, the, the nationalist type grand schemes. Mm. Listening to you both, you know, he, he's different, isn't he? There's a, you know, it's a, or certainly in recent uh, history, we haven't had a leader like him. I, uh, he, and he certainly hasn't come in, I know it's only been six weeks, but he's had a lot of time to, well, probably, you know, all his adult life to think about what he'll do when he becomes Prime Minister. He hasn't got in and rushed, it, obviously, he's very tender steps. Um, is there any risk, do you think, that in 12 months, 18 months' time after an election, uh, the gallery will be saying, this is a do-nothing government. It's not actually everything. You know, is still there, uh, being debated, reshuffled, moved around, but not uh, significant reform. I think, I think it's possible that could be the case because when he gets down to uh, really deciding what he's going to put to the electorate in terms of uh, tax reform, which will probably be the most central thing, uh, it will be quite a difficult judgment for him to decide how much he thinks he can sell. You know, he's popular now, we've talked about the relief and so on, but uh, when, he, if he puts up a package, he wants to increase the GST or broaden the GST uh, and get hoe into a few concessions, then people really start to think, well, how is this going to affect me? Uh, he doesn't have that sort of uh, credit, I don't think, that I was speaking about before with uh, Mike Baird. Uh, so uh, he will have to be reasonably prudent, I think, in what he puts to the people. Assuming that he was re-elected, I think you would see a lot more of the real Malcolm Turnbull in a second term. Mm -hmm. yeah. Whatever uh, that is. <laughs> um, I, th I think in some ways circumstances compel him to make big calls. So I'd take us, you know, it's, it's not disagreeing with Michelle as such, but just a slightly different view of it. I mean, I, the thing that just keeps you know, in the back of my mind is the higher education changes. Now, um, things like that, the 2014 budget haunts uh, Malcolm Turnbull as much as it haunted uh, Tony Abbott because people, you know, the, the, the reaction to that budget was so visceral. Uh, and Malcolm Turnbull has to prove that he isn't Tony Abbott and what's more, he has to prove that he isn't Tony Abbott while still being a complete bastard about a lot of these cuts. So he's going to have to find a way of selling a whole range of reforms, not just because they have to be done, but because people sort of know that they're out there. So between now and the election, which is essentially next year's budget, Yes, he's got to do tax reform, but he has to resolve all of these unresolved issues of both policy and politics from the 2014 budget, um, because otherwise there will remain this scepticism about, about it, because they are all unfinished projects. So I think that forces Malcolm Turnbull to play big uh, on policy. 
Uh, and uh, you know, without a doubt, you know, there will be a lot of paint that comes off between now and the election, and as Michelle says, you know, afterwards as well. But um, I think he's really going to have to make some very big calls. And I think he's got some very, very good young ministers in his cabinet. So um, I, I'm, I'm sort of almost more fascinated to see how they perform than I am to see how he goes. A world of pain for Bill Shorten, obviously. Um, <laughs> you look at the polls today, you just, you don't need a poll, do you? You look at, you look at this situation and, uh, I mean, it looked to me that up until the change, Labor's uh, strategy was just to sit back, really, and, and watch the Abbott government you know, go into a sort of terminal, self-destructive, I mean, it was crazy. Uh, they didn't have to really do very much at all. But now they look old. They look... Uh, all the things that Turnbull talks about, uh, what he hasn't taken from them, I mean, a, a lot of that innovation idea, that nebulous innovation stuff is actually straight from, mm. from Labor. What does Labor do? Well, I, I suppose I just um, make a couple of observations about that. Um, my colleague Phil Curry wrote, I thought, a really interesting column on the weekend talking about the fact that while Abbott was sort of always given credit for destroying Rudd and Gillard and, you know, opposing all of this stuff in the, in the parliament which made governing impossible, um, Shorten actually you know, doesn't get any credit for the fact that they... He survived. <laughs> well, no, that Labor actually did oppose a lot of measures which everybody just presumed that they would roll over and die on because Abbott had got this uh, mandate. And they've also taken some positions which, at the time, everybody sort of said, well, this is pretty stupid or crazy, um, which was, for example, uh, insisting that they had to maintain an e uh, emissions trading scheme. Now... Um, uh, so it's not right to say that they just, you know, sort of sat there and let Abbott uh, uh, disintegrate. His political um, style is not exactly inspiring, but it's if you actually look at what they've been doing, you know, they have been sort of in there and amongst it. And as you say, they've had all of this policy ready to go, and they started to roll it out as soon as Turnbull appeared, uh, and the government stolen most of it. Uh, so. It's easy to just say um, he's as boring as uh, watching paint dry, but the, I, I just think it's going to be interesting to see how he responds to this. I mean, it's very hard to get over the fact that the electorate just doesn't engage with you. I don't know how you do that, but um, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be interesting to just see how Labor plays it and whether they do panic or not. I think these days there's a, an interesting sort of phenomenon that it's thought that um, somehow uh, no one can be allowed to lose an election. Mm. Now, this is somewhat new, I think. The, in earlier times, you even had opposition leaders surviving more than one term as opposition leader. But now it's, um, well, one party's changed leaders, that's changed the game. The other party's got to either change leaders or respond in some way so it's all evened up again. Well, it may be that you have to accept that uh, sometimes you're just going to lose an election. But leaving that point aside, I do think that the uh, 
union relationship, Bill Shorten and the union relationship, is a serious problem. We've obviously seen a bit of this come out in the Royal Commission, but I'm talking about that less than the fact that uh, I think Shorten and Labor just need to be tougher on the whole union question, especially union governance. I don't know exactly why they're not uh, letting the, the governance legislation through the Senate. I haven't looked at that in detail. Maybe they've got a case, but one would think that they need to somehow cut a deal and uh, let that through. I think that um, they have not been tough enough on the CFMEU, uh, obviously shortened at the national conference, depended on them and some other union support uh, when he was um, facing really difficult issues like uh, the boats policy. But I really feel, the more I think about this, I really feel there is a problem there and that one is uneasy that he is not being more robust uh, about uh, that problem and that constituency. Rudd obviously took it on uh, in his time. And if you go, it's a rather different case, but if you go right back to Gough Whitlam, for example, when there were uh, bad parts of the Labor Party, Whitlam was in opposition. Whitlam took those on, confronted them head on, and prevailed over them. And I really think that, that Shorten has this problem and he needs to deal with it and show that he can deal with it. And, and in dealing with it, probably define himself quite differently to the electorate, um, to the way they see him now. But I don't know that he can actually deal with it. No. I think he no. should, but I don't know when it comes to the point that he would be willing to do that. Are there... Um, is there anyone that could obviously deal with it within the Labor Party? <sighs> Um, well, nobody that's uh, shown signs of being able to deal with it. I don't know whether Bowen would be as dependent on uh, the union base. What do you think, Laura? Mm. Um, no, it's, you sort of have to really... Yeah, Bowen's probably the best, mm. the, the greatest likelihood, but he is, you know, a child of the New South Wales right, which is a slightly different thing. Uh, but, um, yeah, he's probably... The one who's not as much of a problem these days because it seems to have disintegrated That's itself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's under control. Yes. If you would uh, like to ask a question, put your hand up, and uh, if you find a microphone in your hand, you can just start talking. The gentleman here. Uh, firstly, thank you, ladies, for 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 all your work. And Michelle, you might remember me. I attended a thing in 1978 as a schoolboy, where you spoke to a class <laughs> of you know how to hurt. that year eleven or politics uh, students. Uh, <laughs> one thing has government gone? Has government has the political political process changed? Um, for forever now because there used to be a government would always get at least one term. We've seen in Victoria and Queensland both one terms of um, government and it used to be and the reason I think one of the problems Tony Abbott had 
one of the many problems, was that the the uh, re-election in WA of the Senate, because he tried to appear to do the classical thing, try and blame it all on the other, that have an audit commission to say it was all their fault, and release that early in the year, but then and then say, look how bad it all is, this is what we have to do, and um, come out with a budget. So what people were saying is he couldn't, he didn't want to scare the horses in WA. Um, so the question's about whether the one-term rule still applies. Applies and... Yep. I think we... Uh I think we're in a much more volatile period. Now, if you go back through the history of since Federation, there have been volatile periods. So um, it, it's perhaps not a question of something that's entirely new, but it's certainly a pretty distinctive phase we're in. One thing that is particularly new, of course, and I think is turning quite destructive is the whole media cycle and the media approach. And this is increasing the volatility and making it very difficult for governments to do anything that's uh, tough and necessary. Um, and I think that that is, that is a, a really new phenomenon. Uh, but um, in terms of uh, particular uh, terms of government, um, I think we are just in this distinctive period. Yeah, I, I think that's right, um, Michelle. The, the, you, you know, we, we tend to sort of go, everything has changed forever and now it's different, whereas, you know, there are cycles in this... Um, and if you look at the early years of Federation, it was very, very volatile. Um, so I think it is more volatile. Voters are much more prepared to say, oh, for goodness sake, um, you know, you're the weakest link and off you, off you toddle. Um, so that does make it a bit more difficult. But um, if you do look at what's happened in New South Wales, I think it's sort of instructive. I mean, Barry O'Farrell came in and had this uh, cunning plan, which was to basically not do anything for the first term and then have a reform agenda for the second term. And uh, in some ways, Mike Beard's basically followed that and it's sort of worked. And strangely enough, that was actually Abbott's cunning plan and I don't know exactly what happened, except he <laughs> then added on his false memory of the 1996 budget and it all sort of went you know, horribly wrong. Um, yeah, but So I think it's, you know, it is, a, as Michelle says, more volatile, but I don't think we should just assume that it's always going to be like that. I mean, I think we're, you've got to look at the longer cycles of these things and the things we tend not to talk about um, in a strange way are the great big economic uh, waves. And uh, if you look at what's just happened in Canada, you know, the fact that um, whether Stephen Harper was any good or not or whether Justin Trudeau's quite hot or not, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, underneath it... Like Australia, Canada is a commodity economy. Suddenly, it jumped, it fell off the cliff. Australia's fallen off the cliff, and um, because the Howard, the Abbott team were so in denial of the fact that the resources boom was ending, because it was all Labor's fault, that's sort of sort of hidden that from us. And inevitably, at a period when you're having this dramatic economic uh, transformation, you're going to get a lot more volatility in politics. Mm.
Uh, thank you. Um, you'll be pleased to know that I have no association with anyone from the past. Um, I'm interested in, uh, there hasn't been any coverage to date about Malcolm's relationship with the right of his party, the very considerable right of his party. Um, and the other sort of, if you like, dynamic that, that's there is that whilst, as Laura said, we've in some senses fallen off the cliff, in some senses we really haven't in terms of, uh, as a people, we haven't yet experienced the trials and tribulations of, of an economy really in problem. Uh, we can see it in the horizon and I guess we're worried about it. And just trying to link this together, going back to the, the budget, the famous budget, the thing that I think most of us um, uh, despised about that was its lack of equity. So Malcolm in our eyes, I think, has to deliver on equity and he has to deliver to the right, and he probably has to, by this time next year, have to deliver to a, a much more grim economic situation. So I just wonder what you'll make of that. Thank you. Well, uh, on his uh, relations with the right, I think the right can be divided up a bit. Uh, there are some, uh, like the right, ministers that have been uh, dropped who remain very, very angry about what's happened and what's happened to them. And they tap into a section of the uh, party at large, uh, which reportedly is also unhappy about dumping a first-term prime minister. There are others in the right who are... Um, particularly policy-oriented, and they're watching like hawks to see what he does on uh, issues that are uh, key issues for them, like same-sex marriage and uh, and so on. And there are, there's probably a third strand in the right who think, well, he's not our preferred choice, but he does look as though he's going to get more members back into the parliament. So they're uh, pragmatic um, and uh, just waiting and hoping that uh, it all turns out for the best. In terms of delivering on these various, um, or to these various constituencies, uh, the right has uh, some particular issues that it's particularly concerned about, like climate and um, same-sex marriage and so on, uh, it's, uh, it's into smaller government, but I don't know that it would be particularly upset about some equity issues uh, that, uh, that others in the party or the uh, electorate in general would want him to address. Uh, those imperatives uh, wouldn't necessarily clash, but there would be an overall clash between, in general, trying to maintain the support of the Conservatives in the party and moving to, um, who was it that used to talk about the sensible centre? Was that Abbott? He never seemed to get there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, whoever talked about the sensible centre, moving to the sensible centre, obviously that's a 
that's a major juggling act uh, overall. Mm. Um, and I think there is this sort of split between you know, the old economically conservative, socially progressive thing, which is the way you'd characterise Malcolm Turnbull. So the, the right uh, via the Nats have really sort of got him boxed in a bit on those social issues. Um, and they've made that their sort of uh, their defining issue, if you like, uh, on sort of, uh, shall we say, the economic equity side. Um, I don't think he's got a lot of room to manoeuvre, but we've sort of seen him trying to basically keep the budget bottom line while uh, rearranging all the peanuts, um, or whatever they are, is it walnuts, anyway, um, so that it is more equitable uh, now. The uh, deal that he announced last week on family tax benefits got sort of mixed reviews. Uh, a lot of people said, oh, it's much better than the previous one. A lot of people said there are still people who are missing out. But what uh, he and Scott Morrison and Christian Porter have done is, as things have emerged, uh, like the position of grandparents, they've come out and said, look, you know, we're open to addressing this. You know, we're, we're pragmatic. We're, we're trying to fix it. So. I think there is, um, there, there is the reality that whatever they do, they can't really tamper too much with the budget bottom line, uh, and, uh, but they will try to make it more equitable in the way things uh, work, you know, via, for example, being prepared to reopen the debate about superannuation tax concessions. Um, missing in all the current rhetoric, of course, is, um, is a debate about the surplus, you know, uh, which is a bit of a relief because uh, that was not getting us anywhere. Um, and Malcolm Turnbull sort of es essentially saying, look, we've got to restrain spending until we can get revenue to grow with the economy to fund it. Um, now, obviously, all the pressure is on while the economy isn't growing and, and, and lifting the revenue boats. Uh, so, but I think, I think he'll be dancing on that pin of trying to make the current mix more equitable um, not trying to necessarily reduce the size of government, probably just trying to rearrange uh, how, it's, how it's distributed. And, of course, we'll see uh, something of his priorities in this when we get the budget update in December, because that, that these days has turned into a really a, a small budget statement, hasn't it, with uh, decisions in it, so we'll, we'll see something there. Just on the Nats, I think that the relationship with the Nats will be a really interesting one, potentially, because the Nats remain suspicious of Turnbull. Uh, I mentioned earlier they, they wanted some policy undertakings in writing. That's the first time that anybody could remember that the coalition agreement went to uh, matters of policy. And I think that there is at least a 50-50 chance that uh, Warren Tr Truss will decide to retire at the election and therefore quit the leadership early in the, the um, next year and um, not quit the parliament or the election, but quit the leadership. And if Barnaby Joyce takes over as leader and deputy prime minister, well, that'll be uh, an interesting relationship. And, and there's all sorts of uh, ructions going on with the nationals about who does take over. But I think I it's, bet, yeah. um, And I mean, Michelle would know this better than me, but the, Nash, the Nats sort of thought they owned Tony Abbott or that he was their creation, that even though they didn't have a vote they, in They wanted to admit that? 
Well, the, in, two, in 2000, they, they don't get a vote in, in the leadership, obviously, but mm. they felt that they were instrumental in bringing down Turnbull in 2009 and putting Turnbull mm. uh, Abbott in. And it, it was, uh, and Abbott kept relying on them, you know, on things like uh, same-sex marriage. And um, it, it's probably, it sort of reminded me a little bit of the Fraser relationship with the Nats and the Nats... Um, despite the fact that the party is very different from what it was in the Fraser era, the Nats were really, uh, to use a um, rural analogy, sort of feeling their oats and, you know, really felt that they, you know, were, were, were and are in a position of much greater power than their numbers suggest. I think they were also, though, a, a bit shocked and appalled about how badly uh, it all went mm. and couldn't quite believe how badly it went. And they did have some differences with... Abbott over policy, big differences. For example, his paid parental leave scheme, some of them would uh, oppose publicly, did oppose publicly, and, and I don't think any of them liked it uh, privately. But um, nevertheless, I think that the, uh, the relationship with Turnbull will, would be uh, potentially uh, a much more difficult and, and volatile one if, um, if things started to get rough. And just uh, as we're ending, um, will Abbott, do, do either of you know anything about what he's going to do? <laughs> no. <laughs> no? No, and I think probably he doesn't at this stage. I think that um, uh, you've got to look at it and, and say, well, what are his alternatives? And that becomes seriously quite quite difficult. There, there are not a lot of alternatives for Tony Abbott other than staying in Parliament, and yet, obviously, he's probably under quite a lot of um, pressure not to stay in Parliament beyond the election. Mm. That's a damning thing to say, isn't it, that for a former Prime Minister of Australia that there are so few... Oh, you know, alternatives. Well, well think that, about it. Yeah. You know, he, he, business doesn't mm. this day, mm. these days just pick up people for the sake mm. of it. No, you know, I believe like a charity. you. I mean, I, so I, he's I not going to do convincing. that. Mm. Uh, I can't see him going into a university. Can't see I him. Ca can't. I can. I can see him being on the stage here with us. As a political commentator, I must say I can see that. Yeah. He could pop up in the ABC. Australian any time. Hard to see him at the United Nations furthering the cause for women. Because, no, I think, I think, you know, become a talk show host on the ABC. I can see that happening. <laughs> I think, um, yes, I think he'll, he could uh, increase the competitive field in the political commentary industry. All right, we've been warned, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Uh, our time is uh, up, but it's been uh, fascinating. Uh, I feel like I'm, you know, in Canberra. Uh, <laughs> it's so uh, terrific. We haven't had very many uh, political uh, uh, journalists uh, this year on the Fit the State, and so it's especially great to have the two of you together to, to talk about this tonight. Please give Laura Tingle and Michelle Grattan a huge thank you. And a huge thank you to you too, Sally. As we heard, the next episode of The Fifth Estate will be the last one for 2015. Check it out at wheelercentre.com or in this podcast. And hey, speaking of podcasts, if you subscribe to us, why not leave us a rating and a review? We wouldn't complain if you shared us with your friends either. Anyway, thank you for listening and stay tuned for our final episode of 2015. 
Dissecting the Dismissal.